man, 2020, what a damn shit show. Thanks to the amazing folk at Bella Catering who have survived the COVID-19 outbreak in Australia as we are starting to wake back up for sponsoring and bringing us this week's show. If you guys want to cater and you're in Oz, bellacatering.com.au. Catering doesn't mean planning a huge event. It might just mean that for the first time in many months, you've been able to have a stack of your friends and family over and who the hell wants to cook? You're probably doom scrolling through your Twitter, shitting bricks that now North Korea is firing off shit at South Korea. Go to bellacatering.com.au. Get off Twitter just for a split second. Thank you for listening. Bellacatering.com.au. Now, all the President's Minutes. Key, you tweet about this today and you said, you know, if a white person was murdered every month for 24 years by the same group, we'd call it terrorism. And you ended your tweet saying, you call it Australia. Well, the thing is, is that, 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 that these people aren't just numbers. They have names. David Gungay, Tanya Day, and they are loved. They are still loved. So what I want to say is just the people who are watching, think about your loved ones. Think about what would you do if they died begging for help? What would you do if they died with a knee on their neck? How angry would you be? What I'm saying is be angry for us. Stand with us. Protest with us because we need you. We, there was never no wonderful Australia. But what we can do is create hope by creating a better world for each other. I mean, I don't have anything else to say from that. These are people and we cannot, I don't want to live in a country where names become numbers. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Uh, it's, it's Sometimes I talk about guests that, you know, uh, I've been lining up on the show for a long time and other guests are friends of One Heat Minute. And this guest is such an instrumental part of many of the podcasts that we've done, including for other websites that it was just a drastic oversight when I looked at the roster that he wasn't there. I felt ashamed of myself. I thought, how the hell did this guy, this extremely wise and insightful writer, TV, music, film critic uh, for a number of the biggest publications in Australia, The Age and Sydney Morning Herald, um, and also just an incredible uh, uh, curator of everything that is in the streaming landscape in Australia with his terrific newsletter Binger um, and a whole bunch of capsule reviews, which basically, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a very sometimes uh, overwhelmed viewer when there is too much choice. Uh, I only like the choice of my physical media when I have all the different streaming things. I'm just like, someone tell me what's good and I will go there. And this is the man who I follow for that particular advice. Uh, he's been a guest on many of the shows, as I said. Um, he's terrific and insightful and great. Craig Matheson, welcome to All the President's Minutes. Oh, Blake, I'm, I feel like I'm going to have to really put the big yards into, into this one. No coasting here. <laughs> no coasting. But what Craig doesn't tell you is that I that there used to be a couple of times, very lucky in the, in the original show that kicked off our entire sort of podcast production 
uh, uh, house, if you like, our little studio here. Uh, no one wanted to follow Manola Dargis. And who who would really <laughs> want to follow Manola Dargis? And I used to throw Craig to the wolves a lot because I'd tell people that some people would ask, who was the episode before me, Blake? And I'd say Manola Dargis. Nope. I'll take another minute. Thank you very much. And so Craig used to do that. So, mate, you don't have to worry about being on your game. You're just on your game. Um, thank you for doing this. Uh, it has been a strange time politically, socially, internationally right now. Let's take a little – let's go on an island and stare into Robert Redford's face together for a moment. And I don't know if we've directly talked about it, so I'm interested to talk to you about it and and to and for the listeners to hear – I know you're a man of New Hollywood. I know you're a big fan of stillness and tension, but I don't know how, how where this movie sits in your canon of great movies, or if, if or what your relationship is to it. So, could you maybe we start the episode with like, what's your relationship to this movie? Well, it's, I think like a lot of great movies, it's an, it's a relationship that keeps changing. Yes, I think I remember seeing this film on country television in the 1980s, you know, with a commercial break for the local car salesman every 15 minutes, um, which I don't think Pecula had in mind uh, when he was cutting it. Not the optimum, you know, optimum viewing experience. You know, Bob, Bob Fords and the Henty Field Day and, and tractors and things like that. Um, you know, but even then it worked for me and I knew the, I knew the background and... I could feel even as a, you know, someone who hadn't been truly connected to film yet, but I could still feel that it had currents and that it had rhythms that didn't match, you know, the, con- the confectionery that you might find in, in, in film, a lot of film then and, and just in, you know, those early days of, of video cassettes, for example. Yes. Um, so there was always something there. And then I think the older I've got, with each watch, um, it's the mastery has come through, and I think, and I think, as a strange thing that as time has passed, the film gets further away from the event, and it has its own power um, separate to the historic events, and it's not just the power of interpretation. I think it's uh, maybe a power of recreation, um, and I feel that more. And even even in the last day or two, watching it again. Um, you know, there were things I found, moments that I felt, and just scenes where you just felt it took you out of your body almost, just the way it conveyed so much without ever letting you know that you were being sort of pumped almost. <laughs> yes. It's, I, I want to touch on two things. Let's, let's start from the pumping, so to speak. It's, there is so much that can be done in silence and gestures and things being conveyed, you know, like there's that old, you know, it's a silly adage, but I think it's a truism is like, just when, whenever possible convey and don't say, and this movie for a movie that has really a stack of expository legwork to do names, Holderman's McGregor's, you know, McGregor, Magruder, uh, you know, Dolberg's. McGruber. <laughs> it's like, it's so confusing. I imagine for someone who is a passive viewer to this to go, I'm not going to catch all these names. 
they're not all going to make sense. I'm just hoping to, to to grab onto them. All I know is that they're the bad people. If their name is usually, you know, they're either a, someone who's going to be a source for information that's going to give me information or they're going to be a bad person. And it's just the repetition that if you're lucky enough to sort of catch them or, or you've watched it many times or you're familiar with it. But I think that, like, like you said, there are so many times where things are effortlessly conveyed to you and you feel it, you get it may not be around the words and understanding the specific articulation, but it's about the fe- what is the feeling that I need to have about this person, about this information that's passing. Even if the information is not important necessarily, it's what is the significance in this moment? What is what, what is this scene doing? And I think this scene on the phone, there's lots of talk. There's lots of BS and like, oh, we've raised this much money and there's lots of strangeness like my neighbor's wife is kidnapped and there's all these wonderful things, but what is conveyed here is that the foundational follow the money premise is is sound. Like it's if you follow the money, it is going to lead you places in this investigation. So I think that that is so that that is a great insight. And I think to your point is, and I, I, this is something I know we definitely haven't talked about on this show yet. It's absolutely the ability to and this is the the pleasure that i'm relishing now doing a movie that is more than 40 years old you know it's um uh, you know actually more than 50 50 years old uh is going watching it and having watched it at least a decade ago and then having watched it like five years ago and then probably yearly after that and then like i feel like i'm the only other person that watches this movie as much as me is like steven soderbergh um just like watching it so with such frequency in the last couple of years, um, but it is one that just kept growing. It kept growing on me. It kept growing on for me for my reactions and my views and my growth. Um, and then you just there's just I don't know. It's this. It's a it's a great sounding board for who you are. Um, uh, this movie and and whether it's your political allegiances, whether it's the technical stuff, whether it's that other stuff. I just yeah. It's it, it's a it's having a com- it's having a conversation with you that sometimes you don't realize you're having. It's it's a really mm. it's a really special one. Like I find now that even even yesterday watching it again, I was looking completely differently at you know Martin Balsam and yes. Jack Warden, and thinking you know I'm I'm almost fifty now, as opposed to being maybe twelve <laughs> the first time I saw it. You know, and when you're twelve, you're just like, wow, Redford and and Hoffman are like. Not quite sure who they are. I know they're stars. I think I'm understanding why they're stars now because there's a screen. But now you're watching Warden and Balsam and um, you know Jason Robards, and you're sort of seeing, you know, what what you know the nature of experience, both the nature of experience in their characters and the nature of experience they have as performers. Um, and I found that fascinating. Again, you know, the, the the way Jack Warden can use can change the momentum of a scene, for example, is I thought you know, fascinating. Um, and just those little rhythms and that little hurry up to give things and that little, <laughs> that, that almost, that, that annoyance. I mean, you know, annoyance as an acting style is kind of, is not common, but you know, maybe Jack Warden's the master of it. He's, he's like, he's like the friction when you light a match, you know, it's like if you're striking a, a blunt bit of paper or the outside of the cardboard, it's doing nothing. And what Jack Warden does is just like, he's friction. He's just, outstanding he, he 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 will get in there and even he's like who's charles colson he's like come here for a second just let me tell you now i'm so glad you didn't say that to bradley or to so-and-so because that's so dumb 
and I'd have to fire you on the spot. Like they will fire you. <laughs> they'll fire. It's 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 so great. He's and you know I, there's one thing that we've brought up about Balsam. It's I only really brought it up once, but it's like you know Balsam and Warden are two of the twelve Angry Men. Like one of the greatest American films of all time. And they're here again. Like they're here in the, they're here lobbying for, for the importance of this story. And it's like it, 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 in and of itself, in a way, the sort of mounting pressure of this story's relevance and omnipresence in culture is like happening to these guys at the same time. And is happening to this cohort of people. And, you know, they all have to convince one another. And I, I don't think that that would have been lost on the casting directors going, we need two of the 12 angry men in here. <laughs> uh, I don't think it'd been lost, but no, you're so right. Just, I, I love their, I love the ingredient. I love the ingredients of really special, terrific character actors who usually don't get to hold sway in whole scenes or push movie stars around. But these guys have got just like so much mileage on them that they just, they can do anything. It's, it's they're very special. I'm just wondering: is this is this film really a, a turning point in the in the way the workplace is depicted? You know, especially the American workplace. Yeah. I mean, because it's much more unorthodox. It's very much about the connections between the people, as opposed not just to the rankings, the you know who's in charge. There's still there's still a power structure, but it's much more informal almost. And um, there's all these little undercurrents, and you know, right back to you know, the way that, uh, you know, there's some classic sort of newspaper stuff from films, like, you know, the way that the warden sort of insists, you know, how hungry Wood, Wood and Bernstein are. But there's also, you know, there's, a, there's almost a difference, I think, in, you know, that very much that sense of you can see the changes in the outside world in this, this mid-1970s or early 1970s workplace. Yeah, I, I, there's two things that I notice in a lot of newspaper texts, and it happens a little bit later very well with spotlight, but it's like something that happens is you always imagine those sort of early, whether it's right from the thirties all the way to kind of what you'd say is like early sixties An editor was always disconnected and held up high. So their offices are always above the newsroom. They are looking down on the cohort of writers and it's like there, there's kind of, you know, all, all that, um, sort of omnipresence of the editor looking down or, or of the, just the, the, you know, I'm this small writer who doesn't mean anything. The paper, the power wielders, the editors up there, um, you know, keep, keeping, keeping us in check. It's, a, you know, the relationship is like, it co could either be holy or it could be like a prison guard. Like it just depends on the film, I guess. But it's, that's something that is kind of abandoned if you like with this. And it's like, they were being true to the textures of the Washington post, the paper itself. But that's like, even in uh, Ben Bradley's performance was he really liked being in, uh, sorry, even in Robards' performance as Bradley, he really liked being on the set when he didn't need to be. He liked to be on the floor, to be around, to feel like he was with his reporters. And so, you know, even though he's the guy that still has an office, um, so many of the folk that are around him, um, they there's a kind of like democracy, if you like, to his office people go and hang around they sit they slouch they're on the couch it's you know it's it, there's still that accessibility that's that's not around there and yeah you're right like uh, this is the this is the first open plan office i can remember in cinema 
Whereas now we all fantasize about Mad Men. We wish that we could open a, a drawer with press shirts and and have a a little like a stand that has scotch and uh, and and a decanter full of whiskey or something like that. But uh, you know, back in these days, it's it's. Oh, sorry, I'll start that again. Back in these days, it's now like you know, it's the old school guys and their coats and ties, and then it's these young snazzy whippersnapper reporters in their flared jeans and their corduroy jackets and their <laughs> messy hair and, 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 you know, and smoking in the office and lounging about and making a mess. And that's just, it is what it is. Hmm. I think in a roundabout way, it, it, this marks the turning point in that, you know, so many great Hollywood films were written by ex newspaper guys, yes. you know, who got out of Chicago and Detroit newspapers, you know, um, Ben Hecht, uh, maybe, uh, Izzy Diamond, I think, perhaps, you know, all those other guys who coalesced around Billy Wilder and, you know, the people who worked on His Girl Friday. You know, there were ex-newspaper guys who went to Hollywood, and I think maybe this is the point where Hollywood sort of came back to the newspapers and sort of, like, you know, maybe we need to update, really, because, you know, those guys, have, that the way they perceived the, the news business, which they grew up in, maybe we need to update that, and those perceptions have to change. Yeah, it's, you know, before then we had Hitchcock using foreign correspondent journos as detectives basically detective substitutes and then there's la dolce vita with the paparazzi that was our spectrum back then right it was just like <laughs> that's about the spectrum of journalism on the screen um but now yeah definitely more contemporary definitely updated and definitely much more romantic let's get to our scene we're right here with mr robert redford playing bob but in the middle of a conversation a tip it's a six minute conversation a single take even keeps in the flub in the final moments and it's uh, a conversation with a Mr. McGregor and a Mr. Dahlberg. And the conversation is now back, thankfully, uh, to Mr. Kenneth Dahlberg, whose $25,000 check has ended up in the bank account of a Watergate burglar. And after reconfirming that he's now talking to a, a actually real Washington Post journalist instead of just some random person who would come up and ask that question... Uh, he's about to confess. He's about to spill the beans about how that check got to where it got to. Um, and Craig and I are going to watch it now, and then we're going to come back and unpack it all for you. Uh, I'm, I'm caught in the middle of something, and uh, I, I don't know what. I, I what do you think it could be? Well, I, I deal with a lot of important people. People who work for the committee? Hello? For the, for the committee. The committee to re-elect the president? Yes. You see, I raised that money in, in cash, and uh, I, I have a winter home in Florida. Is uh, that Miami? Uh, Boca Raton. And, and, and uh, I didn't want to carry all that cash around. Now, you can understand that. Oh, of course I can. So, so I had it exchanged for the cashier's check. And how do you think it got into Barker's account? Uh, I, I know I shouldn't be telling you this. Uh, I gave it to Mr. Stans. Beg your pardon? I, I gave it to Stans. Maurice Stans? The head of finance for Nixon? Yes. In, in one I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon indeed. <laughs> God, I love that. So He's so good. I, I, I love the silliness. I love, oh, of course. You know, $25,000 check. Of course. Yeah, oh, I know. I love that. And I love that the panic of like, you're talking about these people, like 
fact checking, like, oh God, I've got to take these notes. I've got to make sure this is sound. That clarification point because of the madness of the previous call. But oh my God, what a roller coaster of a minute. And it's, um, it's, it's, he's no longer the guy who doesn't know who Charles <laughs> Colson is. He's the guy who knows that. Maurice Dance is the head of finance. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great little minute. Tell me, tell it's me. It's just one of one of the many smoking guns, isn't it? What, what's fascinating for me is the eagerness and the desperation in Redford's performance there, because there are such rare qualities, I think, in his screen persona. Yes, you know, I think an actor who often had a distance to his work and a sort of slight sense of remove and calm, you know, and I think later in his career that, that calcified, you know, he was too, he was never flustered in any of his performances. No. And what I really like throughout the film, and especially in that minute, is just that sense that he gives that Woodward is just on the edge of his seat and he's not quite in control. Yeah. And he's not quite sure what to do. He's just holding on. And there's that wonderful moment where, you know, um, Dahlberg actually starts talk, starts giving the game away. And, you know, I think he sort of, you know, just looks up to, to the sky for a moment and sort of almost just gives a hail Mary a thanks <laughs> to, some, to whatever higher power of journalism has got, a, has got a, a valuable sort of source spilling on the phone. And I just love seeing that in Redford's work and, that, that, you know, the I, Hail Mary that coincides with, I shouldn't be telling you this, and his eyes go up. It's such a beauty. It's just like, it's one of those things that's, it, it could almost be corny, but it's so, like, it's, it's you know, if, if someone says to you that chocolate ice cream is delicious, you know, like, it's pretty self-evident. Yes, it is. But there's nothing more delicious than someone saying, I shouldn't be telling you this and then telling you what they don't want. Like in a movie, I don't know about you, especially an investigation movie or who done it, I shouldn't be telling you this, but you're like, oh yes, delicious, more information. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's sort of a weird sensation, but it's so great. And he's like, please, for the love of God, like that that look, yeah, he's terrific. I, and and uh, I think that that is a really great note and a great observation about his performances later is, some of the performances that dis that that don't have that aren't his iconic ones are exactly that because he's not it doesn't feel like he's raising that register he's staying in this mm. corridor and this movie has that it's got the mistakes mm. it's got the the pace increases it's got the hard ass it's got the green guy it's got all that nice fluidity um and and that polarity in the same performance but it's not you know obviously he's working in the I'm trying to I'm trying to be a guy. I'm trying to portray a real life person, but he's he's at least given the opportunity, especially in a monster six minute close up like this, just really stretch and do whatever he can with it. it but yeah, it's it's that urgency. Please, for the love of God, give me this information. <laughs> basically, is what is what is not being said, but is being conveyed so beautifully. Yeah, I think Redford too often didn't want you to see what his characters wanted. And here in this scene and through much of the film, it, that just surges through what does Woodward want, whether, you know, the ambition and then the obsession and, and the competitiveness and, you know, the hints of ego um, with Bernstein and with outsiders, you know, in, in a way it's, it's really one of the most complete Redford performances. Okay. 
and at the same time, you know, his hair is magnificent. <laughs> like, how do you get how do you get that side brush golden curls? Like, uh, I, I think it's impossible. It's yeah, def- it defies CGI it def- level. It, de- hair. it defies reason. No CGI couldn't do this, Craig. Couldn't do what the natural world can do in the 1970s. His hair, his hair defies reason. No, it's 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 that great thing of um, it's that great thing. And a few people would have heard a couple of moments ago, uh, or a couple of episodes ago, rather, um, the great Kenny Turin on the show talking about you know his realization of the romant the the inherent romanticism of Hollywood was sitting watching this movie for the first time. You know, like something something that distilled in his mind and crystallized so perfectly. It's like he's a guy who was a journalist in an office and he could feel the, you know, that um, the the obsession and feel the sort of the, the, the procedural nature of like picking up a phone and dialing it when you're Robert Redford and trying to get information out of sources. And then there's a moment where you're like, this is A, really compelling and the actual task in real life is really boring. And B, the task looks magnificent because it's Robert Redford and his face <laughs> is beautiful and he's so beautiful. It's like, so there, therefore he's like, it was like finally pulled the wool from his eyes at that time. And I think that that's just such a, an astute and wise point is like, you know, that is that, that's the lie that we just, that we're, we're happy for, to be told in this movie that Bob Woodward looks like Robert Redford. And it's. And I'm sure. I'm sure Bob Woodward was very happy when this deal went down. I'm, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I say this to everyone, Craig. Like I say it maybe too many times, and I don't care because I really. I, I'm genuinely like, if 1974 five Robert Redford is can be cast as you, it doesn't matter. Yes, cast him. I'll take it. I'll take it. Is that going to be me in the movie? Sure. I don't care if we look nothing alike. But that guy, I'm happy for him to play me. I'm, I'm happy for him to play you. I'm, I'm happy for whoever gets the 76 Robert Redford, um, to be their guy. He's, um, yeah, he's, he's, he, he absolutely. And that, I think that is one thing that is that unquantifiable, right? That movie star magnetism. Like, obviously, he's very good looking, but there is just he is. You can watch him talking on the phone. There's no one else. There's no one else that is there. Like there are absolutely pitch perfect wonderful voice performances and the sound design here is just so great because you just you've got to sort of listen tightly but it's perfectly clear and you're listening in and the performances are tip top and he's just he's just crushing it like you can tell that you know they were so intent and wanting this to happen in one take because the rhythms as you said the rhythms of this whole performance it feels like it's swelling it's, 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 it's ebbing and flowing and then it's building up the tension and then there's urgency and then there's relief. It's, it's a whole little mini arc in this movie that just works so beautifully. Like it's telling the whole story of this guy's journalistic style in like this little six minute vignette of how he engages with different sources to get the information he needs to tell this story. Because mm. it's a film, you know, where we're watching Woodward and Bernstein in a way interrogate all these people. And then I think what you start to see is that Alan J. Pakula is interrogating their personas yes. and what makes a star and how flexible and how pliable a star's persona is in the service of such a detailed story. You know, is it, are they, can, they, can they connect with that or do they overwhelm it? Can it transform them or do they transform the material? And I think what's really interesting is Pakula is, is very much open to, the, to what the answer might be. I don't think he knows fully, 
going into the film. Um, and then, you know, but he gets so many good things that he can put it together in a way that it, that it works on both on multiple levels and serves them and serves the film. And I think too often films with big stars can't serve the film and the star at the same time. And often the star wins um, <laughs> at everyone's behest. So, you know, to be able to do both and, and in the end make it look effortless, I think is just one of the sort of the, the little triumphs that are studded throughout, you know, the making of the film. Yeah, it's he's an, he's an incredible filmmaker to – to make a star malleable because you think at the time, you know, just a few years earlier is, uh, is parallax view, um, which is an absolutely incredible film in its own right. And you would think that Warren Beatty, who is a monumental star and usually is such an incredible larger than life presence in almost every movie. He has a gravitational lure that usually people, he just overwhelms films. Like he comes in and he's just, especially at that time, He's just so huge, um, you know, uh, uh, and when you watch Parallax, he's a, he's a dirtbag, like he's a, he's a dirtbag, small time journo, like that is just beat up, small time, totally, you know, do, doing hustled. It, hustling and gets hustled yeah. and cuts corners and he doesn't ever feel like, and it's totally the entire framing of the film and the staging of the film. It's like he's never, he's never a larger than life figure. He's like this, he's he's the guy that's right in the center of frame, and the entire world around him is like this oppressive entity uh, that he that he can't escape. And so it's it's so cool that when you think of like when you do that direct contrast with how how actors that work with Bakula are working with other people around them, it's like he seems to do something different. He's just doing something totally different with these guys and allowing that. And, you know, and, and for all of that, I think, I think just sort of to contrast it with another scene and to talk about this movie, it's, it's all of that business of that classical Dustin Hoffman performance that is really, you know, haywire and, you know, lots of ticks and lots of humming around and buzzing around like a bee near a hive as Carl Bernstein all the way up until the centerpiece for him. Cause this is kind of the Redford centerpiece. And then when he interrogates the bookkeeper and has that dialogue, it is such a muted and slow and eked out, you know, just really trying to make the interaction last longer than he could ever imagine it could. And that is like, it turns the whole movie on its head because you're so used to Bernstein just being this like crazy entity who he can't be stopped. And when he does that, you're just like, whoa, this is a guy who, that that's what I look at at the craft and you hear all the stories about um, Pakula just being this incredible actor's director, like giving his guys the space, guys or gals the space to really inhabit the role and collaborate with them and ask questions and never talk down to them and get what he wants and help them get to where he wants to get them. But yeah, you, when, when you see Redford in this scene, you see Hoffman in that, that, that later scene, it's, it's, it's some really special stuff. And there's that, you know, I'm just thinking now there's that sort of little history between um, Redford and Hoffman, you know, their ca- careers are connected in that sort of, those odd Hollywood casting ways. I mean, if I remember correctly, you know, everyone thought that, you know, Redford should play Benjamin in The Graduate for Mike Nichols. Yes. You know, and it's like, and, and Nichols quite rightly says, no, that 
that guy <laughs> that guy gets everything. You no, know, nothing can go wrong for that guy. He's, you know, he does. He couldn't have a crisis. You know, we need this sort of short, nearly thirty-year-old New York uh, <laughs> stage actor named who's desperate for some success. You know, named Dustin Hoffman. But you know, so it's interesting. I think almost uh, that inter- intertwining of their careers through the seventies. You know, which for all the new Hollywood sort of era was a was a career was an era of great sort of modern but still you know monumental stars Hollywood stars whether it was you know Nicholson Hoffman Redford you know Pacino and De Niro coming through you know Paul Newman still there so you know just I think putting them together in a film is is when their their personalities and their you know, as actors and then their roles are sort of have such a friction that's conducive to sort of, you know, energy and creativity, but always the friction stays. Yeah, it's, it's you know, uh, there's probably no, you're probably actually talking about it or take, articulating in that way. You're probably cottoning onto like something that, it's like the secret connection between heat and this movie. It's like when you put two extremely capable, like Titanic actors in a movie to bounce off of one another. And, you know, obviously in that movie that they're they're sort of these two things that are orbiting and they're on a collision course and they sort of stream past. There's a, there's a near miss and then there's the collision, but it's like, that's one of the things I just adore about this movie is these two guys, like they, especially the beginnings of the movie. And this is like one of those tipping point moments where they are, they are operating so separately. There's all this separation between them. And, you know, I was talking to Joss Rothkopf and he observed that, you know, this is one of the, the final split up the shots we see in the whole film, because it feels like, they are always contending with something else. There's always noise. There's always a distraction. There's always a potential of a bigger story. And he contended that, you know, the removal of that diopter shot in this scene and the focus on Watergate is like, it's, it's basically the, the formal craft of the film underscoring, Hey, now we have a singular focus and these two guys are singularly focused on it. This is their first story that their names appear together on. And then they continue to appear on every story that they do after that, this Dahlberg, um, check story is the first time that Carl, uh, uh, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward's names appeared as a, a dual byline. And um, I, I think that that's having these guys singularly focused and the energy that they both bring. It's just like, this is why you cast two great actors to bounce off of each other because they're doing something magnificent. There's not a star that's overpowering someone who's smaller than them. It's two people equals peers just stretching each other. And then you pad them around with this incredible cachet of like just powerhouse character actors, male, female. Um, and that they just, everyone is just shooting the lights out because the, the end, the, the, it's like, Oh, we're on the team. We're on this huge team. And I just love watching that chemistry. You know, a lot of, a lot of it gets spoken about in sports and, and different things, but it's just, you know, sometimes the chemistry and, you know, some of my favorite, TV shows of all time. It's, you know, you look at that first series of True Detective and you can't recreate the chemistry of a Harrelson and McConaughey who are like buddies for 25 years before they work together. You can't recreate them just pushing each other to their limits. It's so impossible, you know, and 
the, the another big one on a completely random tangent is like I think of the master. I think of Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix as these two guys who are probably, you know, this generation, de- definitely generational equivalents to these guys. You know, they're, they're the two of the biggest powerhouse, critically, you know, lauded performers and they're going toe-to-toe with this movie that is intending to either put them toe-to-toe or to cause this weird relationship to sort of s- spiral all the other parts of their lives out of control. And I just, you just remember as like, you know, that was one of the last movies I can remember arguing with people of who was better. You're like, who's better? Who was your favorite in the movie? And you're like, there was no favorites. They were both absolutely mind-bogglingly, jaw-droppingly incredible. And everyone was incredible around them. Every other character actor, everyone who was around them, just everyone lifts because in the center is this wonderful tension between these two huge dynamos. And you're like, well, this is what it is. Like, this is this is how you make great movies. You get great people, <laughs> really mm-hmm. great equal stars that aren't in competition and ego, or you have a great actor, you know, have a great, you know, director that can sort of, you know, help balance out that ego to, to just lift and lift and lift. Yeah, I wish I wish there was more of this in in Redford's career. Um, I think you know the idea the, of the star vehicle he really. The, he had the sprinkling of that magic, right? He had it with Newman, but but they were so close. There was a closeness with them that gave them this natural chemistry, and so it was actually like, how do I uh, how do I counter program it, right? Like to use that streaming language or like TV language, how do I counter program to have a different, a different chemistry. And mm. yeah, he's, you know, later on, it's like the, the other, the only other big one I can think of, and it's in one of my other favorite movies is uh sneakers. It's like having him again and Sidney Portier later on in their career together, you know, sort of as the equal partners and the heads of that little crew of crew of crooks. And then eventually, um, Sir Ben Kingsley as, as his former best friend who's come out of, uh, come out of jail and is trying to <laughs> control everything and hack everything on behalf of the mafia you just go, man, wouldn't a movie just with like like peak Redford and peak Poitier would have been, you know, in the 70s? Like, whoa, like that would have been incredible. Like, you, you know, but you, you you have to wait until the early 90s for it to happen. Yeah, I always think of there's a film, Brubaker, that I think Redford did about 1980. Yes. Where he plays um, a reformer, reformist prison warden who and the start of the film, he goes into this prison, which is in the America South and is not a pretty place, as and as he goes in as a prisoner. So, hey, it's undercover boss, really. Um, <laughs> and he sort of spends, you know, just watching and, and getting figuring out how the prison really works before he, he's elevated to the top job and sort of can make his verdicts. But I just remember thinking as fascinating as the film is, um, there's never any sense of struggle or risk or any, there's just a bubble that can't quite be ruptured around his character and his performance that, you know, on one level it's just watchfulness and being in control of the situation and confidence. But I just, I really remember watching that film over time and thinking, I, I'm just, I, I wish there was a hint of desperation. There was a, 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 you know, some human, more human failing. And I just, you know, the more I think about all the president's men, the more I think it's a path that Redford perhaps didn't fully follow, and I and I wish he had. Yeah, I think uh, it's a it's the same. He's it's it's almost like he was f- 
looking for exactly what you're talking about is he was trying to find and orchestrate this sort of struggle and failure without, even though the movie ends on an optimistic tone, like they're butting their heads up against the wall for this entire film. It is a, it is like a cacophony of different failures and (laughs) even right up until like the final and greatest pep talk almost in movie history, they've made mistakes and they've got more work to do. And there's still way more work to do before ultimately what is the climactic sort of thing that is happening in this movie. Um, But even three days of the condor ends with, he's a lot more certain. It's a lot more kind of the stakes don't ever feel like he's in, in dire straits. Like he doesn't ever feel like he's in desperate trouble. He's not, he's not that guy. And so when you, when you come to this, it's like, he needs he needs to be ready to surrender to it, and it feels like that Pacula is the guy like that can make it happen. He's like, I'm the guy that can make this happen. I can be more vulnerable, and like even his best performances, you know, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and those sorts of things. It's that that genuine vulnerability. You know, his most famous scene is him being terrified to jump off of a rock wall into a river. Like uh, it's it's so iconic, and yeah, it's one of those things that he didn't do enough of. I don't think. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, you can look back now and you always think actors, some actors got age and experience at the right time in their career, the right eras, you know, and others, others just fell at the wrong point. I mean, I think it took Redford so long to find where he wanted to be as he aged, you know, and other famous actors just get lost as they age. Like, it still upsets me that, you know, Richard Burton, for example, didn't get that, autumnal career that it was only just starting with 1984 yes. where he's incredible you know and he died shortly afterwards you know it's still in his 50s one of the great actors certainly one of the great stage actors who'd moved into film of all time um, so you know it's, I just think back to some of those years with Redford you know like Legal Eagles and you know <laughs> yeah. some of those runs through there and you know then you get yeah I, I really wish there was an alternate path at times but at the same time, you have to go, well, this is a movie star's path and it has its own pleasures and, and there's certainly many pleasures there that are defined by a big screen because that's, that's really where he belongs in so many ways. Yeah, I, I think um, what was a real treat, it was a real treat to, you know, I, I, as I said, I'm a big fan of Sneakers. I'm a big fan of Three Days of the Condor, obviously, Butch Cassidy, Sundance. But I think that that intentional final jaunt of the old man and the gun, I think was an absolute joy. Like he was just that, that is, that is a victory lap of a, of a, of a performance for him. A lot of fun, a lot of fun actors around him, a fun premise. And if folks haven't seen it, if you're talking about like a guy who like gets to choose what his final movie is, like not like Orson Welles is the, the Transformers animated movie is like his final movie. Um, like, you know, there's, there's that, that devastating thing that that can happen in, at the end, toward the end of a career or, or the Isle of Dr. Moreau for, you know, other, other brilliant actors like Brando. It's um, yeah, it's just one of those things where you, you, you can't define it, but like right now in this movie in 1976, the Redford that we're seeing on the screen, you know, he's, he's, he's setting a new model for what a, a movie powerhouse movie star is because he's a guy who's producing this thing his hands are in the script. His hands are in the casting. 
His hands are in the choosing of the director. His hands are in the crafting of all that. And like he, he comes out of this and even though he goes on to win Oscars after it, I, I in my mind, I just think that th- like this is such a crowning achievement and such a template setter of a movie. And so many, so many years later, you know, the, this is the butterfly wings that snap the tsunami of a whole bunch of movie stars going, Oh, I can, and I can actually control my destiny. If I become a producer, I can control my destiny. I can choose the right people I want to work with. And, you know, you see, you know, Tom Cruise to this day, you know, nearly in his sixties, basically still, (laughs) still running around and, and doing, and doing all that stuff. He's a guy who's like taking control of his destiny, making his own production company and, just going, yep, I'm going to cherry pick the performances. I'm going to cherry pick the movies. I'm going to cherry pick the directors. I'm going to cherry pick the writers. And like, you know, to a lesser extent, obviously not going there for the critical acclaim, but more for the just sort of box office, pure popcorn pleasure of it all. Um, yeah. He's, you know, he, he, he set a template that everyone wanted to follow afterwards. Mm. I mean, it's interesting because it makes me wonder given um, Redford's you know, how much control and involvement, you know, like I'd forgotten, for example, he has that possessive credit at the start of the film with Bacula. Yes. Which I'd forgotten was there. It's like a Robert Redford, <laughs> Alan J. Bacula film, like Redford first. And I'm really fascinated, and you would never know, but how close Hoffman would have come to saying no, because Hoffman was so fussy and, you know, picky and argumentative. I mean, you know, if you, if you watch, uh, Get Shorty, you know, uh, I think it's, um, you know, there's that character based on Hoffman of, of the Hollywood star who just sort of swans around and keeps everyone waiting and drops in and out of projects and, you know, um, you know, if I think is, you know, and that was based on Elmore Leonard's experiences in Hollywood trying to get Hoffman to star in a film that he'd written and wanted to produce and things. I mean, I'm always fascinated by the idea that Hoffman said, okay, I'll do this film where it's Redford's you know, production in so many ways. Um, yeah, there's a, you know, there's one funny possessive thing that happened, which was, I think they, they agreed that Redford would be first on the poster. His name would be first on the poster and Hoffman would be first in the credits. Yeah. Um, and then I think I, I wonder, I really wonder if it's like the knife dig in of like a Robert Redford and Alan Pakula so that he even got in there first, <laughs> Before Hoffman, even though Hoffman comes first, it's just one of those things that you're like, maybe there was some messing about. And like, you know, that, that, that is exactly the powder cake moment that you go, oh, well, of course people have got such egos at the time. He didn't want to do it. I do want to do it. Yes, I do. Yes. But it's, you know, you just hope that people can put that crap aside to make the best thing. It's like sometimes those sporting teams who stay together and they're like, you know, you hear about Tom Brady, I'll take less money so I can win another championship it's just like take a little bit I of need, that, take, take a little yeah bit i need gronk yeah <laughs> i need gronk i'll take less money you know i just want i, I often wonder that in that from, from a cinematic stance it's like if you had an emerging filmmaker and who was really exciting and stuff like that people are like no i'll take i'll take less money let I'll, i i just want to start with this guy and you imagine with like a wes anderson budget if all of the star power of his movies decided to command their real paychecks for a Wes Anderson movie, this, the movie wouldn't get made. It just would be impossible. <laughs> but like, he just somehow manages to like, oh, I'm going to get all these incredible actors, my, my troupe, and they're all just going to come in for scale because they're going to have a blast and they're going to know they're probably going to get great reviews and they're going to walk out and then go charge the next guy a squillion dollars to star in their movie. 
now I'm now I'm picturing the Royal Tenenbaum with Redford <laughs> as the patriarch instead of Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman, who was paid full rate for that film, I believe, um, and still made Wes Anderson's life hell um, by all accounts. Um, but yeah, now I'm Gene Hackman oh, doesn't. Gene Hackman feels like a guy who likes to. He feels like a guy who wants to push. And if Wes Anderson's like sort of a delicate artist, you can imagine that he's not liking that very much. But I would love, I would love to, I would love to see like a, a behind, like sneak behind the scenes of him giving Wes Anderson hell in one in one respect, and then in the next respect, seeing him on the set of Unforgiven and just like Clint just not having any of it. Come on, Gene, we're doing two takes. We're getting out of here. Cut it out, mate. Beat the shit out of Richard Harris and let's get this done. <laughs> and I, I only want it done in two takes, so it better be good. <laughs> well, that was a fun tangent. That was a fun tangent. Yeah, I, 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 I often wonder. There is a, there's a special alchemy with great movies that you, you know, you hear about these little whispers. You hear about casting. What if you hear about this stuff? And it's just like some of that more contractual nonsense and. It's like the lawyers and the agents that are involved to make some of these deals happen. You feel like you are this close to turning this project into something that didn't happen. Like just one stupid thing. And can you imagine if that was the rod that you had for your own back? Like this movie that is now 50 years later, you know, essentially still incredibly vibrant, incredibly prescient, you know, inspirational and evocative to whole generations or multiple generations of film fans and film and, 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 and essentially invented the, the word docudrama. Like, you know, like it's, it's, it's a genre creator in, in, in that respect. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's so weird how sometimes those things can like simmer to the surface and you're like, Oh, I, I just can't believe that you would ever want to do that. I, I imagine that people, you know, made allowances and, I think we probably forget how important it was in, in a lot the eyes of so many people, you know, creative people to tell this story. Yes. You know, to get it on film. I mean, because, you know, the book, the newspaper stories, it, it was, they'd lived through it and it was so, probably such a powerful experience for, you know, when any, you know, presidency is collapsing, you know, uh, it's a it's a powerful experience as I'm sure many Americans feel now. Um, so I suppose in a way, you know, I you, I imagine there were people who were able to make the case that we have a duty here. And so, Dustin, pull your head in, Robert, ease back. You know, this is important, and you know, it's an important film. And I mean, important film is such a misused term, and often it's a red flag term. But you know. <laughs> Once you define it, it is, it is a it's a hugely important film. So I imagine it was actually important for them to to get it done in the end, and to you know to get things done in a way maybe they wouldn't do that often either of them, and maybe never did again in certain ways. Yeah, it's 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 a you can't. It's an unimaginable ser- like series of circumstances and pressure to make something that is going to be so heavily scrutinized and them just leaning into it. And so yeah, I guess that's a, the battle cry. It must have been the battle cry of the whole thing. And their obsessive and their obsession with authenticity and research and having the guys on the set and being so dialed into it and making sure that they, you know, cut out anything that was going to be 
scrutinized as non-factual or inaccurate and things like that because they knew that they couldn't so weird to think but there's so many films that take dramatic flourishes with history in in their productions and people uh, the filmmakers and you know in contemporary films and stuff like that oh we just took a flourish and yeah so what but like these guys you can't it's like we're making something that's so important a text that is so familiar that if you do that you're going to immediately dislodge people out of this movie and so yeah they took that so seriously and yeah it's you know the the right movie comes along and you get the right alchemy of incredible people right like you know i think when the godfather comes along and the script must be that good it's like you can command all those things you can command all those people you can command all those armies of incredible creatives but it doesn't necessarily bring them around for another crack unless it's great yes let's let's not think about the godfather 3 no we don't talk about it we do not talk about it <laughs> Craig Matheson. Although there is that, just finally, there is that sort of weird sort of echo in film history of, of you know, I'm thinking now of um, Mike Nichols' Heartburn. Yeah. Where where the character is based on, Jack Nicholson plays. Yes. And it's based very heavily on, um, is it Bernstein? It is. It's Carl Bernstein. You know. And, and it's, you know, it's written by Nora Ephron. Yes. Who was with him. Yes. <laughs> so, so you know, it's like I love that echo down, you know, through through Hollywood and through the through the lives. It's like, well, okay, let's do the Nicholson take on the character. <laughs> and and for some for some people, it's uh, it's it's Will Ferrell, um, it, the movie Dick. It's uh, it's Will it's Will Ferrell playing Woodward, and I think another Saturday night Saturday night live actor playing Bernstein from memory. Um, yeah, no, I, I like the alternate takes. I like the revisionist history of Carl Bernstein coming up through those two guys. I think Nicholson would have had a lot. Nicholson would have loved it. He would have loved just <laughs> taking the piss out of Dustin as well. Ah, uh, true, very true, mate. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. I really appreciate it. Um, other than at CM Screens on Twitter and Binger, where can people find you? Where's the best places? Are they the best uh, places to find you? To, to find parts of my work I mean you can also the Age and Sydney Morning Herald website or if you're one of those people who like to still get the feel of ink on the fingers you know the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald newspapers um, are there as well wow. so they yeah. still, those newspapers huh newspapers newspapers you know, we do like them we do like them people who listen to this show must must like them uh, and since the last time we spoke uh, the Australian Foxtel brand of you know, cheeky devils that they are basically stole your brand name for their own streaming service. So, uh, took binge from you, took binge, uh, because binger was probably, uh, already taken. Well, I'm hoping that autocorrect is going to give me a lot of extra traffic. Um, you know, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for them to buy it. I I think they're probably trying to buy binger. They might want to buy binge binges. You know, I, I think it's corporate practice to sort of have all the adjacent, you know, um, website names. So, you know, I'm sure some senior people at, at Foxtel are listening. Um, <laughs> and if you are, I'm, I'm here. And if make you, an offer. Make an offer that he can't refuse. <laughs> Mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show. I appreciate you um, and appreciate it. And uh, and uh, we'll uh, we may talk again on this journey again. Oh, I hope so. I love every opportunity we have. That was my incredible friend. The one of the most staggeringly incredible and insightful film minds in Australia, Craig Matheson, 
writes all over the place, writes at The Age, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald. But really where you want to go is at CM Screens on Twitter. And once you are there, go and subscribe to his newsletter, Binger, before he sells the damn name to Foxtel. Uh, it's incredibly insightful, super punchy reviews, and uh, Craig is just a, a, a total gem. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting all the President's Minutes. You can find us on Twitter at, at ATPMPod. You can find me at OneBlakeMinute on Twitter as well. And just go to OneHeatMinute.com if you want to find out anything about the show, how to support us, how to donate to us, how to go and be a patron of the show. Thank you so much for listening. Please share and share a like if you're enjoying the show and you know someone would like to listen. We'll catch another episode of All the President's Minutes very soon.